Okay, let's talk about Ephesians chapter 1. Let's recall what we talked about last week in verse 1. Do you remember what Paul started off this letter with? He starts by recalling his testimony. He says, I, Paul, not Saul anymore, I, Paul. And in doing so, he's recalling his testimony, his God story. And then he goes on, he says, to the faithful saints in Ephesus. And so it's like he's recalling their story too, what God has done in their life. And I think it is that tone that propels him into this long list of blessings. Guys, there's a couple chairs up here too, if you want to sit here. And one here and one there, if you don't want to muscle a chair down. Guys, I think it's really important that we catch this context. Paul has just remembered what God did in his life. And then he's recalling what God has done in the city of Ephesus, in the church at Ephesus. And he's like, oh my word, there is so much goodness here. And it seems to create this tone of excitement. And he opens up verse three and says, blessed is the Lord, blessed is the God and our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. It's like he has this moment where he says, oh my word, God has done so much, not just in my life, but in the lives of the people around me, not just with what I can see, but with what I can't see. Blessed is God. And he starts off with this worship of God. Blessed is God. And then he just goes, right? And you can like hear, it almost feels like he's talking really fast. It almost sounds like he doesn't even take a breath. And in the Greek, this is over 200 words in one sentence. You think I write run-on sentences. Paul writes run-on sentences. Three through 14 is one sentence in the Greek. As Paul starts talking about the blessings that God has given his family, this fountain, this overflowing of the blessings as God describes his plan for family. So we are going to focus on verse three. I promise we'll get a little bit past that, but we're going to focus on this because if you look at this, verse three is the the header of this whole section. It's like the topic sentence. He says, blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he's off to the races talking about how blessed, how good is God to have this plan. And in our homework, we used the theme of family to get us started. And then we added the theme of the sacrificial system or the temple. And the reason we did that is to make this accessible because I needed it to, to help me understand this letter, this epistle. So last week, we kind of painted the backdrop of this letter so that it would come to life to us. This week, we looked at this letter through, or this chapter through themes. So whether you knew it or not, this week you were biblical theologians. You used Bible theology, a theme that starts at the beginning of the Bible and then pops up throughout the whole big story. A way that I think can help us get excited or understand that the Bible is one big story is maybe to think, maybe a lot of us grew up learning stories of the Bible. We learned Bible stories. But now we're going to try and learn the story of the Bible, the Bible's story, if you will. So we went and we looked for the theme of family. And I think as women, this was a a helpful theme. I think this was natural for most of us. When we think about 
planning for a family. You know, whether it's how many times during the week do I hear someone talking about natural family planning or trying to make choices on birth control or surprises in their family? I actually thought about when I was younger and my sisters and I would play house. How many of you guys played house growing up, right? I was the mid, oh, yeah, my brother's in the hallway agreeing with me. We never let him play. He was way younger. But the three of us girls would play. And my sister was always alpha, so she got to be mom. And so she would make me be the guy. <laughs> but then because I was wounded by that, I would make our little sister be the cat. <laughs> we would play house all the time in this shed in our, in our backyard. And so I, I think that this theme of family is, is helpful here. So here's how we're going to uh, pick this apart in this, this half-hour time, guys. So we are going to look for what we, can learn, what we learned about God, what we learned about Jesus, what we learned about the Holy Spirit, and then it's going to culminate in what we then learn about ourselves. And here's why we're going to do it this way, guys. Because I think for us to understand Ephesians, we need to understand God's concept of family but we cannot understand God's concept of family unless we start with understanding God as Father. Let's look at this. Verse 3, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What do we learn about God starting in verse 3 and going through the rest of the chapter? We read that that God is the Father, not of us in this verse, but of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then we looked in our homework and we went back to Abraham. We're like, okay, we got to understand this concept of, of God's concept of family. So let's go way back. I mean, here we are in Ephesians, but we need to go all the way back to Genesis 12. Genesis 12, we found Abram, who would become Abraham. We saw that God chose him. God blessed him. God said, I'm going to make a big family through you. But actually, I think that the writer of this Bible study didn't take us far enough back. We're here in 2021. We're looking back at Ephesians. We went back to Genesis 12, but actually, I think we should have gone all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2 to start to understand this concept of family. In Genesis 1 and 2, we meet God's children, Adam and Eve, he makes a home for them in the Garden of Eden, and he gives them this identity. He says that you are image bearers. And maybe this is familiar to you guys, but it's always good to go back to these chapters. He says, let us make man in our image. And we understand that in a family. When we see a child who looks like their parents, a child who dresses like their parents or responds like them. Adam and Eve were told to re represent and reflect God in this way, and he gave them roles and he gave them jobs and purposes. He says that your job is to subdue the earth. Your job is to have dominion and your job is to multiply and to fill the earth. This was God's good plan for his family. But actually, if we really slow down and look at verse three, we would see that God as father starts way before Genesis 1 and 2. That would mean that it has to start before creation. And the reason that I think that we can see that is because we read here that God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That means that he has been Father 
for all of eternity. That means that God in his very nature is life giver, is paternal. God is love. I'm going to try and be as concise as I can, but there's an entire book that I read last year about this by a guy named Michael Reeves called Delighting in the Trinity. It blew my mind to see that God in his very essence is Father. That our God, our three-in-one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are a unified communal God from before time even began. And one reason why this is good, guys, is that even saying like, okay, well, our God is warrior, our God is mighty, or our God is even creator, even those aren't big enough statements. What if we said, okay, God, more than anything, is creator? Well, then that would mean that he needs a creation to be who he is. And God is not dependent on anything or anyone to be who he is. So is God creator? Yes. Should we know that and love it? Yes. But even more primary to who he is, he is father. God has been in relationship from before time began. It is who he is. Love is not merely something that God does. Love is who God is. The life giver, the always outpouring, the always loving, the always creating room at his family table. This is who we read God to be right away in chapter one of Ephesians. What else did we learn about his family? Well, in this chapter, we read that for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And we said, how is that possible? How could he choose us before we were even formed? And then you think about it. Have you ever seen a mom holding her pregnant tummy, looking like she already loves that baby that has not yet been born? And then we went on to read that he adopted us according to his will, adopted us as sons through Christ Jesus. And this theme of family kept opening up as we realized that adoption helps us understand God's growing family. And in fact, helps us understand God as love. Because when I think about those of you who have adopted your children, it carries such weight because you chose them. You chose them. Someone in our group affectionately said, I didn't choose my biological kids. But those of you who have adopted, chose them. And what love that shows. I even remember one of the Veritas women who was in the adoption process and, and picked what was going to be maybe an easier age to, to pick a child. And then this picture of this older girl popped up. And in that moment, she switched and adopted this girl who would maybe have more challenges being joined into her family and the love that was exercised. And so now it colors in who God as father is doting on his unborn children, choosing children long before they could ever choose him. God is father. God is love and always has been. Guys, it is in this context that we can then briefly talk about this idea of predestination, a topic that is hard to grapple with, that people within churches even disagree with what exactly predestination means. I brought up this book just to be impressive. Or maybe to scare you thinking that we are just going to read out of this. 
but I just copied and pasted. Don't worry. Here's predestination according to Grudem. He says, it's an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Predestination that that we were chosen, if we are in Christ, we were chosen from before time. It backs that we are saved only by grace, not by merit, and that these blessings can only come through Christ. So why I'm saying this is the important context in which we have to understand this, guys, is because this can be a really hard thing for us to understand cerebrally, cerebrally, but do you know where it's a lot harder to grapple with? If there's someone in our life that we love that is seemingly hard against God. What in the world are we supposed to do with that? And that's where these things matter, is how do I think of and how do I interact with God when there's something really hard in my life, like somebody that I have loved and shared Christ with for decades, and they just seem resistant to it? There's not a short answer to that, guys. So we start with maybe what can't be true of the situation. And if we are putting predestination against the backdrop of God as loving Father, then we have to say whatever it is that that helps us understand predestination, it can't be that God is unloving. It can't be that God is not good because that is the foundation and the backdrop on which we start to understand what it means that God chooses those whom he will save. And it is in that setting that we find comfort when we hurt. Romans 8 explains it well for us. And guys, listen to, this is Paul as well in Romans. Listen to the family language here. Pick up on it. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. There's that image bearer language. In order that he, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brethren. He's saying the whole purpose of God choosing these children is to make his family bigger, is to make Christ the firstborn, the oldest brother among many. Family language continues to pull through Paul's writings. So what about Jesus? What do we learn about Jesus in chapter 1? Well, let me just list off some of the things that we saw. We saw right away in verse 3 that he is, that God is his God. Okay, it's so easy to skip over that. I definitely did. But actually, we're going to need to kind of be confused by that before we could ever understand it. In verse 1 and 2, we read that God is our God. And then we read that God is Jesus' God. And we should say, how is that even possible? That he would be also our God. And we're going to get there next week. And then we read that he is Jesus' father. But then we read that he's also our father. And it should confuse us. That sounds too good to be true. Well, what else did we learn about Jesus? So he's been the son from eternity past. So Jesus didn't just show up at Christmas. His debut was not the manger. He has been for, uh, from before time began. Jesus has existed. We read that Jesus is at the right hand of the throne of God. That's where we get the phrase right-hand man. So we need to be thinking of Jesus as one who rules and has authority. We read that Jesus is over all things, that he is the head over the church. But just like we did with God, let's actually look a little bit closer and go way before Ephesians was written. Return to our theme of family and return to Genesis. As we look for Christ, it's going to help us understand just how good God's big plan is for his family. So go back to Eden. 
the first home, go back to the first children, Adam and Eve, and remember that things go really bad in Eden. There is someone who wants to destroy God's family. There is someone who wants to fracture the nearness that God has designed, and that is Satan, and he comes in the form of a snake, and his plan is to steal, kill, and destroy the family of God. Why did this happen? One way to think about it is that whole job description that we talked about, Adam failed to do it. Adam was told to subdue, to have dominion, right? The second that snake opened his mouth, what should Adam have done? He should have just crushed him right away. The second a lie came from that mouth, he should have subdued it. He should have killed that snake. He should have practiced dominion. God had given him that role in the family and he failed to do it. And then all heck breaks loose because of it. So now we have a fracture in the family of God. It looks like they are just in ruins. They run, they hide, they hide from each other. So is the family over? Is God going to have to do a Veritas Master of the Restart? We went in our homework (laughs) and we saw. We saw in Genesis 3.15. We hear this from God. I will put hostility between you and the woman. He's talking to the snake. And between your offspring, Satan, and her offspring, Eve's offspring. He will strike your head. Eve's offspring will strike your head. What Adam should have done, Eve's son will do. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Why do we care about this really weird verse? Because in this verse, we see that God as father will not abandon his family in their time of need. That God promises here to heal his family from the effects of sin. God will provide by killing what kills and promising restoration. God would provide for his family and protect his family. God would rescue them. Not immediately, In fact, he's going to fill a whole Bible of waiting for this, but God is saying that someday I will restore the nearness that was lost in my family, and it would be through Jesus. Genesis 3.15, that offspring of Eve is promising Christ. The offspring of Eve would be Jesus, and he would crush the head of Satan when he went to the cross. But as he would go on that cross, it's like his heel would be bitten by the enemy. And the way we connected this to the temple system, as we saw family and temple intertwine, we saw that for death and the enemy to be destroyed, blood would have to be spilled. A sacrifice would have to be made. Genesis helps us understand who we are introduced to in Ephesians 1 in the person of Christ. In fact, we saw in Ephesians 1 that Jesus would do a perfect job where Adam failed. All the ways that Adam failed, Jesus would come through and do it perfectly, perfect obedience. Think of how Jesus perfectly bore God's image. He was the exact imprint of God's nature. That's what Adam was supposed to do, to represent and to reflect the world. We were supposed to look at Adam and be like, that's what God's like. But because of sin, it was fractured. I think of that, um, I don't know why, but I think of the mirror in Beauty and the Beast. I think of holding that mirror And so like when you hold up like that kind of mirror, it shows you, right? It correctly reflects what looks into it. 
But what happened with sin is that we, we hit it and it fractured. And it's like all the glass is still there, but it's got all these jagged lines. And it's, and it's kind of distorted the image of God. Well, for those of us who are in Christ, that image is being restored. That mirror is being put back together. Well, what we see about Christ is that he did it perfectly, perfectly represented God to this broken world. But there was even more hints at this. We actually think of how Jesus had dominion over creation. Anytime you see him calming a storm, it should be taking you back to Genesis. Jesus subdued the demons when he sends them into the pigs. It even says that um, in Ephesians 1, how Jesus filled all things. Think of what Adam was told to do. Multiply, be fruitful, fill the earth with my image bearers. And here Jesus is being shown, oh, oh, he's going to take care of it. He will fill all things. Jesus is the second Adam. He's the better Adam. But guys, it's so much better than even what Adam was told to do as a man. Adam was told to have dominion over Eden and then beyond. But in Ephesians, we're going to see that Jesus has dominion over the cosmos. Remember, we talked about how this book is about Jesus bringing all of the cosmos back together in unity. So we learned a lot about God and saw him as the source of the blessings. We learned about Christ and saw him as the means of the blessing. But what about the Holy Spirit? Is he just extra credit? Do you kind of feel that way sometimes? You're like, oh, I, I'm good as long as I know about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit's weird, so I'll just stay away from that. And our backgrounds can vary greatly in what we believe the role of the Holy Spirit to be. But guys, he's not bonus. He's not forgotten. He's not the third wheel of the Trinity. He is part of the unified communal three-in-one God. And we're just going to briefly open what, we've saw this, what we saw this chapter, and we'll learn more throughout the book. But what did we learn about the Spirit? Well, we read that uh, he was the, the seal um, of our promises. He was the down payment of our inheritance, almost like a promise of like, there's more to come. There's more goodness to come. So think about this in this context, guys. This is a long list of the blessings that we get by being in God's family. This long list of blessings. And think of you are almost like trying to hold all of these blessings because you don't want to lose them, right? And, and they're starting to fall off or maybe they're falling out of the grocery cart and you're like, oh my goodness, I don't, I don't want to lose this. And in a day-to-day life, maybe we actually fear that we can because we read that we're supposed to be holy and blameless. And maybe we have this fear that if people figure out, if God figures out that I'm not holy and blameless, oh, I'm going to lose that blessing. Oh, that one's going to fall off and I'm not going to get it back. But because of the Spirit, we read, that these blessings are safe. These blessings in the heavenly places are ours forever. It says that he is the seal. So what I think about right now, at least with that, is saran wrap, right? Saran wrap is all that I seal, right? I don't have some like, we're not going way back in history to what like sealing means. We'll do that later. But for today, guys, we all have saran wrap at home, right? Why do we use it? We use it to keep something in a bowl or in a container. And if we buy off-brand, it doesn't happen. And I always do, and I try and talk myself out of it. Like, nope, it's worth saving that like 38 cents, right? So I buy great value saran wrap, and then it never sticks to the bowl. It never even sticks to itself, and then you've got soup all over your fridge, right? Well, that's not what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit does protect what is ours through Christ. He is the seal of our promises, 
ensuring that they are safe until the day of glory. These promises, because of Christ, are ours. And the Holy Spirit keeps it that way. The Holy Spirit is also seen as the means by which we can understand the blessings that are ours. This middle section of Ephesians 1, where where Paul kind of pivots and starts talking to the, the audience again, talking about praying for them, I feel like what he's saying is, did you hear what I just said? Did you hear that long list? Can you believe how good it is? I'm kind of afraid you weren't listening. I'm kind of afraid you don't get it. And so he prays that the Spirit would help them get it. What a good prayer for us to pray for ourselves and the people around us, that the Spirit would help us see how good it is to be in God's family. So what do we then learn about ourselves, guys? We've learned about the three-in-one God. Where does this land for us with application? Okay, to finish this up, guys, we're going to use the the head, heart, hands again. So first of all, what do we need to believe about ourselves? Think about what you read this week. What do you think is the most important thing for us to believe about ourselves? Now that we have put God first, that we said what's true about God, now we ask what's true about us. What I think we need to believe is that we are saints. It is time for saint language to take over our life. Paul calls the people in Ephesus saints. And we asked our homework, what's your understanding of that? Why do you think he uses that word? And I hope you had a good conversation in your small group about it. Let's talk about why maybe we fail to believe that we're saints. The first thing I think of is that we have too low of a view of ourselves. Now, I think some of you are panicking, and you're like, oh, my word, is she going self-help? Oh, my goodness, is she going against everything that we've been studying for years now? That we're just supposed to, like, have better self-esteem? That we just need some more props to make us think that we're good enough, pretty enough, skinny enough, talented enough? No. But I do think that for us to believe that we're saints, we need to have a better view of ourselves. And the only way we have a better view of ourselves is by getting a higher view of God. We just read that God is the paternal source of all blessings, just overflowing with gifts. We just read that Jesus is the big brother who shares what is his. And we just read that the Spirit is the protector of these blessings. This is the God that we serve. And when we raise our eyes and we catch who he is, then we understand that we are saints. That's when we can understand that he calls us holy and blameless because Christ has shared his holiness and his righteousness with us. He has shared his identity with us. But there's still a little ditch that when we're trying to teach ourselves to think of ourselves as saints that I think that we can think about. And some of you maybe come from Catholic backgrounds, and I think this is where we can get confused because we think of a saint often as someone who is you know, turned into a, a statue of sorts or put on jewelry or put up in our home, and they're upheld because they were just gooder than the rest of us, right? They just were better behaved than the rest of us. But when we think of becoming a saint, maybe we immediately feel this pressure of obtaining sainthood and maintaining it. You ever feel that way as a Christian? 
this pressure to obtain a, a certain level of Christian womanness and then keeping your behavior at that high level. And instead, the, and then there's no time to be messy. There's no time for a bad day. What do we do then when there's bitterness that we can't get over? What do we do when we have anxiety that we can't just push away? Believing that we're saints does not mean that we on our own strength are always put together. But the way that Paul talks about being a saint because we are in Christ means, ladies, we can be messy and we can be broken and we can be weak and we can have days where we are more rebellious than we are obedient and yet our identity is secure. When we believe we are saints, we will act more like saints. Throughout the book of Ephesians, we are going to see that what we believe about ourselves determines how we act and think. What we believe about ourselves will determine how we act, how we respond, how we behave. So why not believe Paul and believe the inspired word when he tells us that we're saints? Not because we do our Bible study homework, but because we are in Christ and he has shared his identity with us. That's what we're going to believe about ourselves. What about our hearts? What should we feel? You ready for the cheesiest line ever? What should we feel about ourselves? We should feel blessed blessed. Like everything in Hobby Lobby, right? Faith, family. What's the other F? Faith, family, fun. We are hashtag blessed. It's so cheesy. It so fits with Ephesians 1 though. Guys, we should feel blessed. We should feel this cascading of goodness that comes out of chapter 1. It's like a fountain and like Jesus is the fountainhead. And as we fumble around trying to bless God who gave us these blessings, we need to realize our reality is that we are under this like avalanche of God's blessing, this deluge of God's blessing. But so often we feel like his blessings are just trickling out, right? Isn't that how we act sometimes? Like, oh no, no, I better catch this one because there's not more coming. They're just sprinkling. They're just dripping. And we get this scarcity mentality of God's blessing. And Ephesians 1 challenges that. That is not the reality of those of us who are in Christ. It's a fountain, a torrent. We're inundated with blessings. Yes, I went on thesaurus.com and looked up every synonym I could for fountain. That is the image we are supposed to have from this. So what's the ditch? Why don't we feel blessed, guys? I wonder if one of the reasons is because we're too busy with the blessings that we can actually see and touch. Here's what I mean by that. When people say, I'm so blessed, isn't it usually related to something or someone that they can feel and touch? Is that wrong? No. My kids are a blessing. My house is a blessing. My friends are a blessing. But the context in Ephesians 1 is talking about the things in the heavenly realms, the things that are unseen. That's why Paul says he wants the eyes of our heart to be opened. That's why we need the Spirit's help to see the blessings. 
Guys, sometimes we're so stuck on what we can see that we think that's as good as it gets. Or we're so stuck on what we can see and touch that what happens when we lose those things or when we have a bad day, when our money goes away or our relationships break, then we don't feel blessed anymore. But if we could find our identity as blessed children of God in the things in the heavenly realms, the things in Ephesians 1, I think we'll feel blessed. How then do we act? This would be our our application. How do we act when we believe chapter 1? We act like worshipers. That's what Paul is in this chapter. He's a worshiper. He opened up with, blessed is the God and Father. Worship to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ as he goes off and and almost sings this doxology. But lady, where does it start? Well, where it started with Paul was he recalled what God had done in his life. He recalled the road to Damascus. And then he recalled what God was doing in the life, the lives of the believers in Ephesus. And then he spilled over. Then he became a fountain of worship, a cascading of praise to God. And maybe that's what we need to do. Do you need to recall what God has done in your life? Do you need to recall the day that you went from spiritual death to life? Or do you need to maybe see what God is doing in the lives of the people around you? Do you need to be able to look around the family of God and say, oh my goodness, look what God did there, 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 and there. Look how he chose them, blessed them. Look how he predestined them, forgave them. But ladies, you know what? You can't do that if you're not in community. And I'm preaching to the choir, at least to an extent right now, because you're here. But if we are always trying to do the Christian life on our own, it's going to be harder to think, feel, and act like we're blessed because we're not going to see God doing the mighty works in his people around us. But if we do, then I think that we will worship. We will be like Paul. I don't know how many of you even noticed on the title page of this week, we put the lyrics of, Come Thou Fount. I'm not going to sing. But I, I went on a rabbit trail, and when we closed on Sunday night, I started talking about this, and I kid you not, they just started singing, and it was amazing. You don't have to do that. There's no pressure. It's only cool when it's spontaneous, so I'm ruining the moment. They just started singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures. Hear Ephesians in this. Hear below. Praise. This is how it happened on Sunday night because I couldn't remember the words. Yeah, there's the Trinity. So let's let the words of come thou fount be our prayer as we close chapter one. Come thou fount, fountain, fountainhead. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy praise. God, make us worshipers. Streams of mercy fountain of mercy, not a trickling, streams of mercy, never ceasing, calls for songs of loudest praise. God, would you teach us some melodious sonnet sung from flaming tongues above, 
and praise the mount. I'm fixed upon it as a saint. The mount of God's redeeming love. Amen. Thanks, ladies.